Hello, Crime Lab. I'm your host, Jessica Garcia. For today's case, I need you all to be aware of the triggers that this may bring some people. In this case, we have corruption, false confession, police tampering with evidence, privilege for sure. You name it, it's all here. But please be aware that there's also children involved in this story. And I myself have a hard time listening to horrible things happening to small kids. Because we'd all hope that nothing bad would happen to a young child, but it does, unfortunately. So be aware of the details to come. In today's episode of Crime Lab, the story of an overseas worker who comes home to find that his entire family was brutally massacred. It's been three decades since then, and this case remains unsolved. Today, I want to talk about the case of the Visconde murders. The Viscondes were your average, run-of-the-mill Filipino family composed of husband and wife, Laurel and Estrelita, as well as their two daughters, 18-year-old Carmela and 7-year-old Jennifer. Like many of his countrymen, Laurel Visconde was an OFW, an acronym that stands for Overseas Filipino Worker. He found a job in the United States in 1989 and began sending home a huge portion of his salary each month to sustain the rest of his family. Thanks to Laurel's work abroad, the Viscondes were rather well off, especially when compared to most of the country's population. In fact, they even lived in a gated subdivision in Paranaki City, which is located in Metro Manila, the capital of the Philippines. It was, and still is, a relatively affluent area, with security guards manning the entrances and exits where they were tasked with taking IDs of non-residents seeking to enter the village. To add to that, both Visconde girls studied in private schools. Carmela at the University of Santo Tomas, where she majored in psychology, while Jennifer was a first-grade student at the Bloomfield Academy. They were a tight-knit family, with Laurel and Carmela often speaking on the phone with each other, despite being on two separate continents. She was a self-professed daddy's girl, even confiding in Laurel that she intended to pursue her graduate studies in the United States upon finishing the university in the Philippines. For his part, Laurel decided to begin looking for an appropriate school for Carmela, even going so far as to move from one state to another. His dreams of being reunited with his eldest daughter were taken from him on June 30th, 1991, when a telephone call from Manila informed him that his wife and two daughters had been brutally murdered inside of their home. Needless to say, it was the sort of homecoming that one wouldn't wish on anyone, even on their worst enemy. Estrelita Visconde, who was 49 at the time of her murder, was found with 13 stab wounds all over her body. On the other hand, Jennifer 
was stabbed a total of 19 times, while Carmela had 17 stab wounds. An autopsy also revealed that she had been savagely raped before she was killed. With a single phone call, Laurel's entire world shattered before his eyes. But the weeks that followed were even more excruciating due to the bungled investigation carried out by the incompetent Manila police force. For one thing, the authorities at the scene of the crime had accidentally messed it up, destroying crucial evidence in the process. DNA testing at the time wasn't used in forensic investigations in the Philippines, which is why samples weren't collected. Because of this gross mishandling, the Visconde Massacre, as it has become to be known, sat unsolved for four entire years. In April 1995, however, it once again made headlines when the National Bureau of Investigation, or the NBI, announced that a witness named Jessica Alfaro had come forward. Jessica's allegations shocked the entire nation because the person that she claimed to be the killer, a man named Hubert Webb, was the son of a prominent Filipino senator. She further pointed to seven other men, specifically Antonio Liano, who went by the nickname Tony Boy, Dong Ventura, Michael Gachalian, Pike Fernandez, Peter Estrada, Jean Rodriguez, and Joey Philart. All of them came from wealthy and prominent families in the Philippines, which disturbed the public even more. Additionally, Jessica also claimed that a police officer named Gerardo Bionge had deliberately tampered with evidence at the crime scene, which made him an accessory to the Visconde Massacre. These allegations became the primary basis of a trial that began in August 1995, which took place at the Paranaki City Regional Trial Court and was presided over by Judge Amalita Tolentino. Jessica was the prosecution's star witness. Although her testimony was also corroborated by Laurel Visconde, as well as the medical legal officer who conducted the autopsies on the victims, Several security guards from the subdivision, a former laundry woman of the Webb family, and the ex-girlfriend of Officer Bionge. According to Jessica's version of events, she was with her boyfriend, Peter Estrada, on the night of June 29, 1991. They were headed to the local shopping mall where they planned to meet up with Dong Ventura to purchase some meth, commonly known as Shabu in the Philippines. Once they arrived to the parking lot of the Ayala Abang Commercial Center, Peter proceeded to introduce Jessica to the rest of his friends. These are the men that Jessica would later implicate for the killing of the Vesconde family four years later. Jessica claimed that Hubert Webb, the case's primary suspect, had asked her to relay a message to Carmela Vesconde, whom she had met earlier that year. She agreed, and after the group finished smoking their meth, they drove in a convoy to the Visconde family home in Paranaki City. Hubert had asked Jessica to fetch Carmela. However, Carmela declined the group's invitation to go out, saying that she had just arrived home. Because of this, the group headed back to the mall's parking lot where they continued to smoke meth. Afterwards, they drove back to the Viscondes again, where Carmela explained to Jessica that she had to leave for a little while. She further gave instructions that the group was to return before midnight 
and that she would leave the kitchen door unlocked for them to enter. Jessica claimed to have trailed Carmela after their conversation, watching her as she dropped off another man whom she assumed to be the other girl's boyfriend. She relayed this encounter to the rest of the group and noted that Hubert's mood darkened when he heard about Carmela's male companion. They all engaged in another drug session, mixing cocaine and meth, before deciding to drive once more to the Visconde family home. However, Hubert was noticeably pissed off by that time and made a crude remark about Carmela, saying that they would all line up for her and that he would go first. At the Viscondes, they were met by Carmela, who took Hubert inside to their dining room while the rest of the group waited outside. But after a few minutes, Jessica claimed to have gone inside the house where she heard a strange noise coming from the master bedroom. When she opened its door to investigate, she alleged that she saw Carmela on the floor, gagged and being raped by Hubert, while Tony Boy looked to be in the process of putting his clothes back on. On the witness stand, Jessica further testified that the group was angry at Hubert for killing seven-year-old Jennifer. She claimed that Jennifer woke up to what was happening to her sister and in response jumped on Webb and bit him. This caused Webb to throw the small child at a wall while proceeding to stab her to death. Jessica also claimed Estrelita didn't stand a chance. Liano and Ventura used a kitchen knife to kill her before they even killed her girls. Despite these sensational allegations, many remain unconvinced of Jessica's version of events, mainly due to the fact that she was a drug user. However, their skepticism was exasperated when it was revealed that Jessica was an informant for the MBI, a job that required her to fraternize with criminals, only to snitch on them later on. More than that, though, several details of Jessica's story didn't seem to line up with the circumstances of the case. For instance, the glass panel of the house's front door had been smashed. However, the defense questioned why this was so since Jessica had claimed that Carmela and Hubert had been seeing each other at the time of the murder. They also pointed out that Jessica had been under the influence of drugs when she allegedly witnessed the Viscondes being murdered. Naturally, this tidbit made her testimony untrustworthy. However, Jessica's allegations were corroborated by Lolita Bered, Officer Bionge's former girlfriend, who claimed to have accompanied him when he went to clean up the scene of the crime. She also testified that Officer Bionge had gone to the Webb's family home where he received money from Hubert. Jessica's testimony was corroborated by other witnesses as well. The Webb's family maid testified that on the morning of June 30th, 1991, the same morning as the murders, she went into Hubert Webb's room to collect his laundry like she always had. And when she proceeded to wash his clothes, she realized fresh blood stains on his shirt. She also noted Webb's uneasy behavior, pacing back and forth in his room looking rather irritated. To take this even further, security guards at the entrance of the subdivision where the Visconde house was located stated that they saw the cars enter the subdivision on the night of June 29th, just as Jessica testified and confirmed that Officer Bionge was the first officer to arrive at the crime scene that morning. In response to these allegations, the Webb family stated that Hubert had been in the United States at the time of the murder, even producing a note from the United States Embassy in Manila. However, 
These documents weren't admitted into the court since Judge Tolentino ruled that such papers could be easily falsified. The trial lasted for five years, during which both sides fought fiercely for their witnesses and their version of events. But on January 6, 2000, the court ruled that Hubert Webb, along with the rest of the men that Jessica accused, were guilty beyond reasonable doubt of rape with homicide. They were sentenced to reclusion perpetua, which is a form of punishment in the Philippines, wherein life imprisonment is given in lieu of the death penalty. Additionally, Judge Tolentino required them to compensate the remaining members of the Visconde family with 3 million pesos, which is the equivalent of approximately 97,000 in U.S. dollars today. Unfortunately for the prosecution, Dong Ventura and Joey Filart have managed to escape being arrested. At the time of the 2000 verdict, they remain fugitives from the law. But even with Hubert Webb and the rest of his friends behind bars, the case was far from over. The next few years saw a constant stream of appeals, most of which were filed by the Webb family. In 2007, they succeeded the Supreme Court of the Philippines, decided to reopen the case. DNA testing was immediately ordered. However, the NBI sheepishly revealed that the specimens collected at the scene of the crime had long been destroyed. On December 14, 2010, the Supreme Court rendered its decision. Out of the 15 justices, seven had voted for acquittal, while four dissented. The remaining others did not participate, including Senior Associate Justice Antonio Carpio, whom Laurel Visconde had publicly accused of aggressively lobbying for the reversal of the regional trial court's verdict. On December 14, 2010, the Supreme Court ruled that the prosecution in the original trial had failed to prove the men's charges beyond reasonable doubt. With that, Hubert Webb and all of his friends were released from prison. Given the verdict issued by the Supreme Court, the Visconde Massacre is widely regarded in the Philippines as a case that has remained unsolved for the past three decades. Many share this perspective as well. For them, all nine suspects must be presumed innocent since the questionable testimony put forward by Jessica Alfaro, along with the destroyed evidence from the crime scene, has failed to prove their guilt beyond reasonable doubt. But Laurel Visconde feels differently. For him, a huge part of his life was also lost alongside his wife and daughters, on that tragic day in 1991. For the next few decades, he grieved at how he was never able to bring justice to Estrelita and their daughters, Carmela and Jennifer. He only found joy years later in 2016 when he went to his grave as a 77-year-old man, ready to finally be in the presence of the family that he had lost.
eager to hear everyone's opinion on this case and the undeniable feeling that justice managed to slip through the cracks. To see pictures of this case, the victims, and to take a look at sources used for this episode, please visit the Instagram page at crime.lab.podcast. I hope to see you in the comments. Let's talk about this, please, because believe it or not, this happens all too often.